Welcome to the Just Pod, a podcast by the Criminal Justice Section of the ABA, the unified voice of criminal justice. Welcome to this episode of the Just Pod. Today, we are joined by Emily Galvin Almanza, former public defender and founder and co-executive director of Partners for Justice, which she'll tell us about in a little bit. But Emily, thank you so much for joining us today. Thank you for having me. Yes, Emily is here to help us with our conversations around reform, and we're going to fill in a piece that has been missing from these conversations focused on the public defender space for opportunity for reform. So Emily, if you would, you know, reflecting back on your experience as a public defender, would you tell us about the patterns that you saw as a public defender that create harm to communities? Absolutely. So thank you for that question, because I think taking a step back and thinking about this as patterns of abuse and neglect of communities and toxic sort of oppressive acts is really, really important as just a foundation. Because when we talk about the criminal legal system, we're talking about a system that is primarily directed towards low-income people and people of color. The intake to this system is, of course, policing, which in America is very, very focused on certain neighborhoods. We all know that low-income Black and brown communities are policed very differently than wealthier white suburbs are. So the intake to this system is causing it to be highly directed towards people who are in other ways historically excluded. Once we have people coming into the system, the pattern then shows a tendency to prioritize its own efficiency, the efficiency of punishment over the potential or the, you know, the possible future of the people who are coming into the system. I think about it this way a lot because oftentimes when we see someone of privilege and wealth engaging with the criminal legal system, we will see judges become naturally concerned with that person's future. I think a lot of people were really inflamed by the degree to which that conversation was had around Brock Turner. You know, that here's a, a young person with a bright future ahead of him. And when in fact, you know, most kids who are targeted by the system, a lot of them kids of color or low-income kids, don't have that same concern shown to them by the system. The system is more concerned with their present behavior or their past behavior than it is with their future potential. So I think that pattern of focusing on punishment instead of focusing on restoration, safety, opportunity, creates a really, really dysfunctional structure in which we are kind of undermining our own societal safety. (laughs) And, And a lot of this comes through the indifference of the system towards its own enmeshed penalties. That's sort of the third pattern I would mention always good to talk in threes, (laughs) you know, the efficiency of punishment, uh, the racial bias, and then of course, these enmeshed penalties. When the criminal legal system engages with a person through arrest and prosecution, it creates a huge amount of fallout in that person's life. You know, an arrest can lead to two nights in jail, a missed shift at work. No one calls the boss because, you know, you're in jail and you can't call your boss. And then you've lost your job. And without the job, you can't make rent. And without making rent, you've lost the apartment. And now you and your kids are in a shelter. And there may be a child services intervention that results in you potentially losing custody of your children. So it's, you know, every single contact with our criminal legal system, no matter how small, really creates this pattern of fallout that can impact every single part of a person's life. 
And the fact that that isn't taken into consideration, you know, that the system's reaction to that generally is, whoops, that's just a collateral consequence. It's not really, it's not our business. That's not uh, part of our legal structure is a really frustrating, willful ignorance towards the real impact of the law here. Yeah, that's something I've found particularly troubling as I've had these conversations on the podcast. We've certainly discussed some of these harmful effects that you were just speaking to of the current state of the criminal justice, specifically, you know, the examples you just gave of potentially missing a shift, potentially losing your job, potentially losing your home or having some sort of custody of your children taken away in some measure, some interference there. And these are very significant, devastating consequences. And when we're presuming innocence until proven guilty, I cannot understand why there aren't federal protections to help prevent some of this harm, especially it seems like protecting employment or familial custody seems like something that could be protected. Why are detainees not protected from these losses? Isn't that weird? Like you you would think that the system that says we view you as innocent, you have not been convicted of any crime, would not also allow the loss of all of these things that are essential to functional living in America. Yeah. I would say there's a couple of different things at play here. One is the availability of access to counsel. I feel like the federal government and our federal system is allowed to let this harm slide in many ways because it's an act of omission by the feds. There's nothing that they've like affirmatively done that's bad. They're just not doing things that people actually need. And one of those things is this right to counsel issue because the only type of lawyer most low-income people will be automatically afforded. The only constitutionally mandated lawyer is a criminal defense lawyer. But in fact, for many people, their criminal case may be much less important to them than their family case. I know that if someone was trying to take custody of my daughter, I would not care what happened in my criminal legal matter as long as I got to stay with my kid. I would walk through fire to stay with my daughter. But people don't generally, you know, they are in many places given some access to counsel, but in many places it's not immediate, it's not early, it's not upstream in the system sufficiently to make a difference. Resources are limited. It's not institutional. Like there's so many barriers to access to quality counsel in family court and also in housing. I mean, let alone employment, but housing, we're seeing a right to counsel movement in housing court around the country that's so exciting and transforms outcomes for people facing eviction so dramatically. But, you know, the home is everything. It's the place where you feed your kids. It's the place where you get ready for work or for a job interview. It's a place where you can receive an offer letter if you're trying to get employed. It's like without a home, you are undermined in so many different ways and your potential wasted, thrown away. So again, you know, employment, there's great civil legal aid organizations doing employment discrimination work, doing wage theft, doing wage and hour. It's just like there's so much stuff that is necessary, but because it's not constitutionally mandated, it's not consistently made accessible in the same way that public defenders are mandated to be made accessible. I think part of that comes down to the people making these choices about what we resource and what we make accessible and what we don't reflexively do not consider my clients to be their constituents, which is a huge problem. When a person is running for office, maybe it's because we have so many former prosecutors in office, but when a person's running for office and they're thinking about who their constituents are, they often don't think of people sitting in jails awaiting trial. They often don't think of people coming home from prisons. 
I think this relates back a lot to the loss of the voting franchise and people who are convicted of a crime. But because we take away people's right to vote, because we silence people involved in the criminal legal system in so many different ways, we take their money, their power, their stability, politicians are free to ignore them as a constituency. And the result of that is urgently needed, very sensible fixes are overlooked at a federal governmental level. And that's not by everyone. There's some amazing leaders in Washington right now who do think of my clients as constituents and care deeply about their well-being and their potential, but it's far from universal. Yeah, thank you for that. And so I take it that there hasn't been successful advocacy for these types of protections at any point. It's really complicated because yes, there is advocacy for this. I think the biggest problem is that so much of the harm is done under local law. Mm -hmm. So I think you could probably pass some federal mandates relating to, you know, disclosure of prior convictions in the course of hiring. I mean, you could certainly pass laws that created funding for and incentives to engage with the right to counsel and housing court more robustly in family court and perhaps even in employment matters. But criminal law is all reserved to the states. So the fallout from criminal law, like the interplay between you are convicted of X crime and therefore you lose your, you know, security guard license, that's local. And that has to happen at a local level. And when it comes to enforcement, the best the federal government can do in many cases is carrots and sticks. Mm -hmm. There's a grant to do this if you want to. And if you don't do it, maybe you won't be as eligible for, you know, certain forms of cops grants or burn JAG grants going forward but it's certainly not like simple. (laughs) Right, right. Okay, well, thank you. I appreciate that. And so now, as I mentioned earlier on this podcast, much like the rest of the nation, we have been discussing potential areas for reform and their impact on the criminal justice system. You recently put forward an opinion in the Washington Post that public defenders can do more addressing rising crime and systemic challenges. So- I'd like to give you an opportunity to share those recommendations with our listeners, if you would, please. Yeah, thank you so much for that opportunity. So public defenders are this really, really exciting resource when it comes to the public safety conversation. It's for a couple of reasons. First of all, unlike, you know, alternatives to incarceration that might come into play once a person's midway through their process or, you know, reentry programs that are amazing, but sort of happen after the fact, public defenders are really upstream in a moment of great crisis. When a person gets arrested, it may be because they engaged in harm in their community and they may be wrongfully arrested. It it may be that they did nothing, but they are going to be harmed by the fact of that arrest. So no matter what, if you've got an arrest, if you look at the category of people who are experiencing arrest, it's a group of people who are at high risk of causing harm or being harmed, one of the two. So it's a very important group of people to address if we're gonna address community safety. It's a high stakes, high impact group. Who has the best access to this group? Police and prosecutors access them early on upstream in the system, but public defenders access them upstream in the system shortly after arrest with a unique form of connection. And that connection is that public defenders have legally enshrined privilege and confidentiality, which lets this group of highly at-risk people um, be forthright and protected and safe in their relationship with their defender so that the defender can find out what's really going on. Maybe what's really going on to have caused this person to engage in harm 
or maybe what's really going on in terms of the full scale of harm that this person is experiencing as a result of their contact with the criminal legal system. But either way, public defenders are upstream in contact with a very important group of people and empowered by that legal protection, that, that confidentiality to find out more of the truth and therefore create better solutions to ensure that someone can disentangle from the legal system and move forward with their life intact. It's also really important that public defenders aren't opt-in. So many of our resources, think, you know, amazing civil legal aid providers. To get through the doors of one of those providers, you have to know you have a legal problem and know where to go to get help and actually make it through those doors in spite of the fact that you may be working two jobs and have four kids and like a medical crisis. You have to make it through the doors. That's a lot to ask of someone who's in crisis. But public defenders are not opt-in. They're literally given to you. <laughs> you do nothing. You have this toxic contact with the legal system and here is a person. So if we can empower that person to do more, we've done something really powerful with a really important group. The doing more can take many forms. Generally, no matter how progressive or decarceral or like wonderful a prosecutor might be, their primary tool is a cage. It's the threat of a cage, right? Like the power of police and prosecutors is to threaten you with jail or prison and try to get you to do stuff on the basis of that threat. That's not a really flexible toolkit. But public defenders, if properly resourced, have the power to create incredible, bespoke, highly effective solutions. You know, I'm thinking of the person who's, the example I used in the article is, you know, a person who's been arrested for shoplifting deodorants, which are easy to resell. And the reason they're doing that is because they have no health insurance, they lost contact with their medical provider, they're off their meds, they're having a mental health crisis. Well, the police or prosecutor can threaten that person with jail time unless they do X or Y. But the public defender can put together a truly bespoke plan. Get this person reconnected with public benefits. That gives them access to health insurance, which lets them re-engage with their healthcare provider and afford their medication. Once they're back on medication, we can work on employability, clearing past convictions off their criminal record to make them more employable, perhaps working on a GED, practicing ways to talk through criminal legal contact in an interview. You know, there was a time when I was in crisis this way, but here's how I moved forward from it. And here's why I'd be great for your company. Helping that person find work and income so that they can support their kids without engaging in the behavior that caused them to be in the system in the first place. So it takes a lot of resources to do that. Public defenders are notoriously under-resourced. If we threw half the money that we throw at policing and prosecution over to the public defense side, you would be creating this easy to access engine of public safety and restoration that would be much more effective at creating not just safety, but economic mobility and better outcomes in a, you know, a variety of areas in a low-income community. So I think the bottom line is local legislators need to stop looking at the public defender as like the schmo who gets the bad guys off, which I've been looked at like that, <laughs> and start looking at us as this massively high-value public safety utility that should be resourced as such. Yeah, and especially if public safety is the goal. And true justice is the goal, right? So exactly. you, you've taken action to rally this sort of support by founding Partners for Justice. So tell us, what is the mission of Partners for Justice? So our stated mission is to break the cycle of poverty and criminalization in America. And what we really are is a way to make it easier 
for public defenders to take on that really, really robust service profile that I just described. Essentially, we do this by using a catalyst player. During my time at Bronx Defenders, I kept thinking back to what it had been like to be a public defender in California. And I was looking around at all my like brilliant interdisciplinary teammates at Bronx Defenders thinking, man, public defenders everywhere should be empowered to do all of this restorative, bespoke, brilliant work. We should be empowered to say yes to our clients who are in crisis and asking us for more help across more subject matter. So I thought, who's the most important player here? Most public defenders can't afford the whole team immediately, but they can probably afford one or two roles. So I was looking at non-attorney power. And ultimately, we created Partners for Justice, which is a program in which we recruit and train brilliant new professionals, oftentimes college graduates, but that's not mandatory, valuing candidates whose intersecting identities or lived experience reflect the community we serve and inform their work in that manner. And we train this cohort of what we call advocates to do housing stabilization, job readiness, educational continuity, benefits applications, treatment support, property retrieval, civil rights referrals, and then to package everything they've done into mitigation. So we not only reduce jail time, but we create better outcomes throughout our clients' whole life. The result so far is that these teams have actually reduced jail time for our clients by 130 years, and we've only been in service since 2018. But what we do with these teams to get that 130, to get all those jail time reductions, is we embed them with public defenders. So we train these new professionals, we get them really, really ready to go, and then we send them to you know, the Office of Defense Services in Delaware, the Alameda County Public Defender's Office. Right now we have teams in Delaware, Miami, Baton Rouge, New Orleans, Houston, Compton, East LA, Oakland, Yolo County, California, and the Confederated Salish and Kootenai tribes of Montana. The public defender hosts these teams for two years at minimum. And during that time, we provide resource building, technical assistance, coaching, basically all of this free expertise and capacity to these public defenders who are employing our advocate teams. So I think that the result for the public defender is it's sort of like an overnight dramatic expansion. <laughs> it's like, I think of it like plugging in an external hard drive to the public defender's office. We preload the hard drive with all of this holistic collaborative service capacity, and then we just plug it in. So two weeks after the advocate team arrives, suddenly the public defender is offering housing stabilization and benefits assistance and employment readiness and educational continuity and licensure help and like all of these things that their clients need but could not previously access. We also train the attorneys to engage, you know, to issue spot across subject matter, to engage with the advocates, building collaborative practice in offices that were previously traditional public defense, you know, straight criminal defense agencies. So the end result is that it's easy to transform a public defender at a very low cost to their county or state into one of these public safety engines or sort of one-stop shops for wraparound services with the Partners for Justice team. That's incredible. And listeners, we will be sure and link to the Partners for Justice website so that you can find more information there. Thank you for sharing all of these thoughts and insights with us from your experience, both your former experience as a public defender and current experience in founding and leading this organization, Partners for Justice. This has been a wonderful discussion and you've given us a lot to reflect on. Before we wrap up, is there anything else you'd like our listeners to consider as they engage in this work within the criminal justice system and potentially contribute to the conversations that lead to reform? Just one last thing, which is that all of this comes down to what the evidence shows, right? 
in most fields, like I'm thinking of how the, you know, vaccines are developed. We're all thinking a lot lately about how vaccines are developed. <laughs> you know, look at medicine where, you know, people want their medicine to be made based on research and data and testing and experimentation and evidence. And we would never take a medicine that someone's like, I don't know, I put these things in because they smell good. But in criminal law, so often our policies are built on tradition and fear and anger. We want to punish people who were afraid and who were mad at. And that model has allowed us to continue engaging in practices that are not causing safety. Like, no, you, there's that saying, you can't get well in a cell. Like, nobody gets better because they've been incarcerated. And letting us do bad things to people we're afraid of and mad at lets us as a legal profession, an 86% white profession, allow the implicit bias of our culture to do profound harm to black and brown communities. So I think when I talk about resourcing public defense, I'm talking about promoting things that the evidence has shown are effective at actually creating safety. Stable housing creates safety. Job opportunities and work create safety. Educational attainment makes people less likely to engage in crime. Having access to shelter, work, any kind of mental health or substance use treatment that people might need, those three ingredients dramatically reduce the chances that a person is going to engage in harm. So I guess if we started making law the way we make medicine, we would probably be doing things like resourcing public defense, creating access to counsel, and focusing on those things that are proven to reduce crime instead of reflexively relying on what we currently use, which is just not effective. All right. Well, thank you. Certainly, as, as I said before, a lot to think about and reflect on. So we appreciate you contributing to our discussion. Listeners, once again, this is Emily Galvin Almanza, former public defender and founder and co-executive director of Partners for Justice. So thank you again. And thank you to our listeners for joining us on this episode of The Just Pod. <laughs>